I'll invite you to join me again in Joel chapter 2. And the words to which I will call your attention this evening come to us from verses 15 through 17. Joel chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is God's word. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will abide forever. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, we come before you this evening to, to sing your praises and to worship you. And we ask now for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We are here for your glory and our good. And we ask that you would make all things plain to us so that we might dedicate ourselves to you, that we might consecrate ourselves to you, and that we might live now in light of the end. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you've done much reading or watching recently, you've noticed on the, in the newspapers and on TV that we are anticipating conflict with China, perhaps at some point. I was reading recently in an article that was quoting a, uh, a member of the military uh, flagman of saying that, uh, that uh, the big one could be anytime soon. And what do they mean by that? Well, what he means is that uh, the U.S. military is on the decline. Uh, we are committing less money now than we ever have to the preparation of our military as a percentage of our GDP. We are committing about half now what we did Um, you know, roughly 30 years ago, whereas our enemies are committing more and more and more. The only advantage that we have these days is perhaps in our submarines, they say. China has launched a missile that can travel at sonic speeds around the globe unbeknownst to us. And so we are warned. uh, The big one is coming. But as Christians, we think about another big one, don't we? We live in the light of another big one. It isn't a rapture per se, but it is the return of Christ. We know that the next big event on the world's horizon is the return of Christ. And I was thinking about that as I was preparing this week and reading in Joel chapter 2. Verses 15 through 17 really, I think, teach us what it means to live in anticipation of the return of Christ in a way. They teach us what it means to live in light of the return of Christ. Now, let's take just a minute to remember where we are at this point. Um, One of the commentators I've been following as I read through Joel chapter 2 is a, a medieval Jewish guy, and he presents an interesting picture. Um, we, as we went through Joel chapter 1, we noticed that there are all these patterns of fours. There are four locusts. There are four, four parties that Joel addresses. Um, the elders, the drunkards, the priests, the uh, laborers in the soil. All these patterns of fours. And, 
And uh, perhaps the intention there is to make a parallel with Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7 where he talks about the four kingdoms and the four exiles that the Jewish people would experience. And so in chapter 2 and verse 1, we see the destruction of the first temple. Sound the trumpet. Gather the people together in Zion. Uh, This is the destruction of the first temple, and the first kingdom comes. Babylon comes upon Israel, comes upon Judah, and destroys the first temple. And so then the next thing that we see in the history of Israel here, perhaps, is in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. The return to the Lord. What's happening there? Well, perhaps the return to Jerusalem. The southern kingdom going back and under Ezra and Nehemiah, beginning the rebuilding. And so in verses 15 through 17... Uh, some suggest, is looking forward to the destruction of the second temple in A.D. 70. Whether that's the case or not, I can't say for sure. I don't think any of us really can. But it is interesting, as we move ahead uh, in verses 18 and following, you're going to read some words there that are reiterated in the book of Acts and coincide with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit the inauguration of the fullness of the new covenant. So it is interesting to think about. Let's just locate ourselves here for a second. Uh, Go back with me to verse 15. What's happening? Blow the trumpet in Zion. This is the either the first or the second trumpet. It's hard to say. If we go back to chapter 2, verse 1, there... Joel commands them to blow a trumpet there as well. And we remember, what was the trumpet for? Well, the trumpet was blown to signal something to the people. If they blew two silver trumpets, it meant come together. If they blew one trumpet, it meant what? The enemy is with us. We need to assemble the armies. And so here, it's, it's time to depart. Here, it seems that it is the latter. There is only one trumpet that is being sounded. Is this the same trumpet or a different one? Well, the location is the same. Notice where they are. The temple is standing, isn't it? Notice with me verse 17. Where are they to gather? Between the vestibule and the altar. The vestibule was located on the front portion of the temple that Solomon Built. We, we learn about it in several places. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 3, we're given the measurements of that vestibule. If you were to picture it in your mind, imagine a series of columns um, on the front of the temple. It's about 30 feet long and 10 cubits or about 15 feet deep in the front of the house. The The capitals, it would have been an impressive thing to behold after Solomon had built it. The top of them, the top of these pillars, the capitals around those pillars would have been, uh, had the emblems of lilies all around them, perhaps signifying the peace of the kingdom. On the south side and the north side, it had two pillars. One uh, named after Joaquin and the other after Boaz. It was at this portico, or this colonnade, this vestibule, that Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord when he dedicated the temple. And so you see there that there's a vestibule and the altar. 
When the second tabernacle or the temple was constructed, they enclosed this vestibule. So that in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, it was there that Jesus was walking in Solomon's portico, remember? And in Acts chapter 5, we learned that the early church would gather in Solomon's portico before the temple was destroyed. It was in this portico as well that during Hezekiah's reign, the people came together and consecrated themselves in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 17. And interestingly, in Ezekiel chapter 40, when he describes the construction of a new temple, he goes into great detail talking about this vestibule. So it was here at the tabernacle that the people were to gather. So the temple is still standing. Perhaps it is the second temple. The first one having been destroyed and then rebuilt by Nehemiah during the term of Ezra. There's no army mentioned as before. It is simply Israel and Jehovah. The two parties present. And as we think then about this scene, about the people gathered here at the temple having heard the blowing of the trumpet, understanding that God's judgment is coming against them, I think it is appropriate for us to use this passage to think about our own hearts in anticipation of the day of judgment. Remember that this is the theme of Joel. The anticipation of the day of the Lord as we read in chapter 2, verse 1, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Why? For the day of the Lord is coming. I can somewhat relate to this when I was in fourth grade, I guess. I, uh, I used to be a fairly talkative young man, so much so that it bothered my teachers. I could probably wallpaper a wall with the notes that I got home for talking or chewing gum in class. On one day, I might have told you the story before, one particular day I decided that I was going to sign the note in behalf of my mother and turn it in. Not long after I turned it in, I got a call from the office saying, Brian McCullough, please report. And I knew it probably wasn't good news. This was not an honor roll sort of uh, moment. And my dad was there. He left work early from the paper mill to come and pick me up. And the whole ride home was silence. I was allowed to anticipate the day of judgment. Here, Israel is called together. And they are called together for one purpose, to anticipate. Now, as we go back, we notice in chapter uh, 2, verse 12, that there's a promise that's been given. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And so the urgency may be, God is offering us mercy. There's this overture of mercy to us. Now get everybody together, blow the trumpet, let's respond to the Lord. Whatever the case may be, there is a sense of urgency. And I want to give you just... Just three things here, three little lessons I think we can take away um, from what God instructed Israel, that the anticipation of judgment demands sacred preparation. The anticipation of judgment demands proper priorities. And the anticipation of judgment demands prayer and repentance.
Notice, first of all, with me that the anticipation of judgment demands sacred preparation. Now, uh, let's look at this scene again. Who is going to lead all of this with Israel? Who are the ones that are called to to lead Israel in this moment before their Lord? We find it in verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. So here, uh, God's intention is for uh, Joel to tell the priests and the priests then to go and to begin to round up all of the people. This is led then by the priests, but also we see that the elders are mentioned in verse 16. Um, in Israel, the, the spiritual leadership of Israel was structured very similarly to the way that it is structured in our church. We learn in the book of Jeremiah that there were elders of the priests and there were elders of the people. And these were the spiritual leaders. And so the priests and the elders were to come together and lead the people in this moment of consecration. Let's look at what they were supposed to do in verses 15 and 16. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. The first thing that they're called to do is consecrate a fast. Now, in Israel, there was only one day of the year that they were supposed to come together and consecrate a fast. One day. One day out of the whole year in the spiritual life of Israel. They were to, as it is said in Leviticus 16, afflict themselves by fasting. That day was the day of atonement. They would take two goats and one would be sent out into the wilderness and one would be sacrificed after Aaron uh, uh, confessed all of the sins. Well, here, God is calling the people to set themselves apart again. Consecrate yourselves to the Lord as you anticipate judgment. They were to call a solemn assembly. This was a holy convocation. This, again, is a sacred day. They are to set it apart, set themselves apart, set the day apart, and make it holy. They are to gather the people together. What's happening here is that there are national sins that have been committed. They have forgotten the Lord. They have perverted His worship. They haven't been faithful to Him. And so they are to come together as a people and observe this time together. Turn with me over to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Let's look at a similar moment in the life of Israel under the leadership of Jeroboam. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now what's happening in this scene is that the people of Judah were under attack. Wave after wave of enemy had come against them. The Moabites and the Ammonites, the people of Lot's descendants, were coming against them. And they were uh, uh, oppressed. And so Jehoshaphat, in verse 3, was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. And what did he do? He proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord, and all, from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. 
And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? You see what's happening here is in light of the affliction that God has brought against his people, they respond by consecrating themselves to him. God's judgment against them causes them to remember their need for obedience. Let's go back now to Joel chapter 2. What's happening here then is that this is a public assembly where the people are uh, told as a people to fast, to set themselves apart for, for, uh, to the Lord for what purpose? In anticipation of His judgment, in pleading for His mercy. And so I think this causes us to think, are, are there times where it is appropriate for us as a church body to do something like this? I remember not long ago that um, I believe it was the governor of Texas, this might have been a few years ago, who called on the people of the state to pray and ask the Lord to send rain because there was a devastating drought that was going on. And the answer is, yes, there are times when it is appropriate for us as a body to fast together to repent together, and to seek the Lord's forgiveness. Let me just read to you from our book of church order. Fasting and thanksgiving may be observed by individual Christians, at times by families. You think about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where, um, we won't go into that right now, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can review that later. By particular congregations, by a number of congregations that are put together, by the congregations under the care of a presbytery, or by all the congregations of our church. So there are times where it will be appropriate, maybe for the session, to to come together and say, we should really fast. We should really call our people uh, to think about our present situation and ask for the Lord's intervention. Maybe it's a national election that is um, very important. Maybe it's a presidential election. Uh, Maybe it's because there are things going on in our denomination that are evil and that need reformation. And we need, we are calling out to the Lord for His help. And we want to consecrate ourselves to Him. Now, as we think about this, just for a second, remember that the way that Israel consecrated themselves was through observation of the ceremonial law. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19, the way that they did this was by fasting, okay? Uh, They were also called to abstain from uh, sexual relations between husband and wife for a period of time, to purify themselves, to, to give an offering, to wash their clothes. This is the way that they consecrated themselves to the Lord. How do we think about that appropriately now? What has replaced the ceremonial law for us? What would that consecration look like for believers under the new covenant? I think this. 
that we remember that, that these ceremonial laws were a picture of the blood of Christ. And as a new covenant believer, I remember that I am set apart by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am consecrated, not by the blood of bulls and goats. I am consecrated, I am set aside, I am set apart by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we prepare then to enter God's presence, it is appropriate day by day, moment by moment, and especially Lord's Day by Lord's Day, to to think about the blood of Christ, to think about the price that has been paid for me and to orient my heart rightly in light of the price that has been paid. Now that might include fasting as well. Secondly, not only does anticipation of judgment demand sacred preparation, and and I think especially that thinking about Christ setting my heart on Christ in anticipation of God's judgment. But the second thing that we see here is that anticipation of judgment demands proper priorities. When I was riding home with my dad that day, I didn't ask him to put any songs on the radio. I didn't ask him what was for lunch. I didn't ask him how his day was at work. I was fully preparing my answer when we got home, when he said, what were you thinking? My priorities changed. And that's true for us too, isn't it? Knowing that Christ is returning reorients my priorities. And knowing that every single individual in Macomb, every man, woman, and child will be subject to that judgment and that it has eternal ramifications, reorients my priorities. Notice what he says here. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Can you imagine fasting infants? Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Time out on the wedding. Bring your children. Everybody's fasting. We are all presenting ourselves before the Lord. I think this is a reflection on uh, the demand for proper priorities. Even the nursing infants would fast during this period. Now, so, so you can get the whole picture in your mind now a little bit. Everybody's fasting. You can hear all the growling stomachs around you as the priests perhaps are reading the law. Everybody's consecrated. And what else do you hear? These infant voices crying. I appreciate what Matthew Henry said about this. I'll just read to you a quote. That by their cries for the breast, the hearts of the parents might be moved to repent of sin, which God might justly so visit upon their children that the tongue of the sucking child might cleave to the roof of his mouth, Lamentations 4.4, and that on them God might have compassion as he had on the infants of Nineveh. Here's what I think we're getting at, that that when I live in light of the coming judgment, 
Having been consecrated by Christ, I remember that my priority as a parent and a grandparent and just a member of the church is teaching children to live godly lives. Including the children had another effect. It reminded the people that their examples of living ungodly lives would affect those children. This is not just about you, Bob. This is about these children too. And your wickedness will affect them. Set your priorities in order. Lastly, the anticipation of judgment demands prayer and repentance. So we've seen that It demands sacred preparation. I want to make sure that I am sanctified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It demands proper priorities that I put right things in order, thinking of eternal things first. And then lastly, anticipation of judgment demands prayer and repentance. Notice with me in verse 17 what's happening. The priests are weeping. So, We've talked about this long vestibule and the altar that's in front of it. That vestibule would have been facing the east and the altar in front. And there was where Solomon consecrated the temple. And there is where all the people would gather. They had nothing to offer. They had nothing to offer. If if this is, is, is the time... Uh, before the destruction of the temple, remember that God had sent a, a famine upon them. He had laid waste to their land. There was nothing that they could offer. All that they can do is weep. And I think as we think about this, just as our joy over redemption, it produces a happy heart, doesn't it? When I think about God's goodness toward me, I sing, I praise, I worship Him. But when I think about sin it should have the opposite effect as well. Just as our joy over redemption brings outward smiles, so contrition over sin should bring outward sorrows. It is right to weep over sin. Peter wept over his own. We are reminded here in prayer we seek two things as we anticipate judgment. In prayer we seek God's mercy and we seek His glory. Notice what the priests are to say. Just as in Hosea, we are directed how to pray to the Lord. Pray this. Spare your people, O Lord. Spare your people. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, we're your people. Give us our right. Even here, after consecrating themselves And fasting before the Lord, what are they doing? Calling on God's mercy. Father, spare us. I deserve this. I deserve my affliction. If you're fasting as a family or as as an individual to deal with some personal sin, what are you doing? I'm seeking the Lord's mercy. Be merciful to us. We're also seeking God's glory. Notice what they say. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? 
This is a, a statement that comes up over and over. We see it in Psalm 42.3, Psalm 42.10, Psalm 79.10, Psm 115.10. A regular prayer to the Lord is this, Father, don't let us become a kind of people that makes the ungodly say, where is their God? I think people are saying that today. Because so much of the visible church has become ungodly. It is lamentable. As we pray for the Lord's mercy, we also pray and ask that He might make us the kind of people who don't bring shame to His name. Who have a zeal for obedience to Him. And we remember, as we read these words, that God may do with us as He pleases. We are His possession. He created us. Paul in Romans chapter 9 reflects on the fact that He has made some vessels for mercy and some vessels for judgment, as is His right. When we have sought to do all that God demands of us in anticipation of His judgment, our only plea, our only plea is this. For the sake of Christ, O Lord, spare me. Spare me. Apart from Christ, what ought we to do? Tremble. Be afraid. But in Christ, my friends, we may sing, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, You have every right to be angry with us, to be wrathful with us because we haven't consecrated ourselves and and it is a shame to us that it takes things like threats from China or Russia or a, a blown tire that causes us to begin thinking of You and seeking Your favor. Lord, we ask for Your forgiveness. And we ask that You would renew within us a hungering for Your glory. That we would long for it. We ask that You would so work in us by Your Spirit that we would not bring shame to You. That we would be faithful to repent when needed. We would not be a selfish and a vainglorious people. We ask for Your protection. And Father, we pray and ask right now that being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, Oh Lord, would you spare us. Spare us from the coming judgment and help us to live in a proper anticipation of it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.